All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I am your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, I have the great pleasure to be speaking with Peter, who has worked in publishing for more than 40 years. Prominent books he has edited include Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, Deepak Chopra's Ageless Body, and Susan Cain's Quiet, just to name a few. He is also an independent editor and writer, having just recently published his own book, Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. I'm ecstatic to have a person who I call the whisper of words on the show. So welcome, Peter. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into uh, your own book and then just, you know, words of wisdom for across the, you know, the, the many years of working with exceptional writers and working on so many awesome projects, I, I like to get everyone to the same place and ground everyone with a question of just, who's Peter? Who are you? Who am I? Well, how many uh, months or years would you like to spend <laughs> delving into that topic? Um, it's, yeah, as you know, lifelong journey figuring that one out. Um, but, I mean, relevant to this conversation, perhaps, would be that um, I was, as a, as a child, as a, as a toddler, really, uh, my family was living in Jakarta, Indonesia. And... Um, it was there that I, I got polio. I contracted polio as a two-year-old and was paralyzed. And my parents were very worried. I was their firstborn. My mother was pregnant with my brother. And they were very worried about me. Uh, happily, it all turned out well. Uh, although I never would, would run as fast as other kids, be quite, uh, I was never going to be a star. I was always one of the last kids picked in, in physical education when they, when they picked teams. Yeah. Um, but it turned out that that turned out to have a silver lining. Um, and I think that kind of shaped a particular view of mine, which is that traumatic events can and do always come with a silver lining. Um, mm -hmm. if, if we look and hard enough and find it. Um, and in my case, um, because I wasn't, you know, running around with the other kids quite as much, uh, I turned to books as a way to, kind of give myself the kind of unfettered freedom and the ability to explore, you know, not just the playground or run around in the, um, on the football field, but to explore, you know, alternative worlds and times. And I love historical fiction, for example. Um, and, and, and kind of, so lots of people are, their lives are kind of opened and enhanced and enriched by the experience that books can deliver. For me, it happened early and with particular intensity because I didn't have quite as many alternatives. And as a result, you know, I became a, a passionate and kind of omnivorous reader. And that turned out to be a useful skill in what would become my profession, which was editing books, reading other people's material and making suggestions as to how it might be improved and, and what might work better and uh, which has turned out to be an incredibly fun and enriching um, kind of life's work for me. Well, th thank you for providing a bit of backstory. I, I was going to ask you about that. So thank you. It, it helps provide context, obviously, on uh, the significance or importance of of books and stories. And like you said, kind of that, that freedom or that uh, alternative um, 
perspective or worlds to explore, right? I'm curious, Peter, did you, was it just a natural flow into this as a profession in, in working with, with authors and editing <laughs> or, you know, did uh, that come with a little bit of bouncing around? Oh, that came with bouncing around. I mean, what, 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 uh, what worthy development in life doesn't come without bouncing around. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, for, you know, when I got out of college, uh, I was just thinking, you know, what am I qualified to do? And the fact is, you know, very little. I had an English degree, so I was either going to teach or do or become a journalist um, and or maybe work in book publishing. But at first I tried to become a journalist. Um, okay. I applied for a bunch of jobs. And but it was the time right after all the president's men had become this huge, successful movie. And every kid with an English degree wanted to become, you know, uh, a, a reporter and, and break a big news story. And it was very, very competitive and difficult to do. And, uh, and I didn't have a J school degree. Uh, so I ended up looking for alternatives. And one of the things I hit on was, was a job in book publishing. I saw an ad in the New York Times for uh, somebody to work in the promotion department of St. Martin's Press. Okay. Um, and writing catalog copy. And I thought, okay, I'll give that a try. Uh, I went to the interview, uh, wore, I bought a $6 suit. Um, it, it had some Love cigarette it. holes burned into the inside, but you couldn't see that on the outside. So I, <laughs> I, I produced a tie and a shirt and went to this interview. Uh, unfortunately, the person who kind of bounced into the waiting room to greet me and interview me was wearing high top Converse sneakers, you know, stovepipe <laughs> black jeans and a white T-shirt. And I thought, oh, God, he's going to get the wrong idea. Here I am. I really cleaned up my act for this interview. And he's going to think I'm this kind of straight laced, uptight guy. Yeah. We had a good interview. But after a couple of weeks, I, I, I hadn't heard and I knew I wasn't going to get the job. So I did a crazy thing. I went back into back to St. Martin's Press, back to the waiting room, picked up a copy of a copy of the catalog, uh, brought it home, and rewrote some of the catalog copy there, uh, wow. and sent it uh, into John Tebble with a note saying, "Listen, I, I haven't heard from you. It looks like you're probably not going to hire me, but I want you to just uh, give this one last shot because I think it'd be great." Um, it turned out that he had written the catalog copy. Um, so it was a risky gamble, uh, but it absolutely paid off. He had been on the brink of hiring someone else, um, and he really liked what I did with the copy. So I got the job, and uh, eventually I had to transfer. I had to make a, a difficult transfer from kind of the marketing aspects of book publishing into the editorial department. But, yeah. uh, but at least my foot was in the door. What a story. What a story. Did you know, I mean, I know you, you know this now, I mean, it, just based on what you shared at the, with the opening story, but at that time, like, did you have that link or that insight to the fact that, you know, books were, were such a huge part of your life and that you were, you know, an avid reader and you've, you've probably read more words than most coming into a, a job like that at that point, like had that connection formed at that point or, or did that come on? you know, come up a little bit later in life? I mean, I'm, I'm sure at, at some, some level it was there. Yeah. Um, but at the, at the time, it translated into a, a very kind of stark awareness of the fact that I wasn't good for much of anything but reading. Um, it was like my one skill. The one thing I can do really well is read. The one thing I love to do and 
do whenever I have a, a spare moment. And in fact, today I, I feel kind of, I feel like there's a hole in my life unless I've got a good book going. Um, mm. And um, yeah, so I don't think I knew it firsthand, but I, I sure as hell knew that I wasn't equipped to do a whole lot else. I had to find something to do with reading uh, and writing that was going to uh, help pay the bills. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I can just just having uh, known you for for just I mean a short period of time, really. But I mean, we've had a few interactions, and uh, just for, for some backstory for for the listeners, m- many know that I'm working on a book. Um, and and Peter ha- has had a huge hand in the very beginnings of of the the idea, let's call it. And I only share that because it's it, it's starting to make sense to me in the sense of like just the small little nuances and word tweaks that you made in, in, you know, some of the profiles and the, in the prompts, like there is that marketing spin, but also obviously, you know, uh, quality editing over years, like you can just feel it. I mean, there's something there. And, and, and the reason I bring that up is because I don't know if it was in one of our conversations or if I just read this through the preparation for the show, but at one point I read that, you know, you at, at one point in your career, you started to be brought in when things got complex for the publisher and the author. And I mean, that's that's a pretty prominent place to be. Uh, like, I'd love to know how, because you're a modest guy, I know that, so I, this might be hard, but like, how did you get to that point of being the go-to person behind the words? Well, I mean, I think it that was, that kind of dovetailed with my becoming a freelancer, independent book editor. Um, because the fact is when you're working as a, as an editor at a publishing house, you know, there are so many demands on your time. I mean, you are, um, I mean, you're going to meetings all the time, right? You are, uh, advocating for your books within the system. You are advocating for books that you want to try to acquire. You're reading proposals from agents, and then you're trying to get people excited about it and then get money from finance and a marketing commitment so that you can acquire the book. You are spending your time in lots of ways that don't involve editing. Yeah, and the assumption in the business. There, sorry? Yeah, you're in the business. You're in the business. It, it yeah. is a business. And the assumption there is that you'll do the reading and the editing kind of um, on your own, uh, your own time outside the office. But of course, there are only so many hours in the day and in the week. Um, So when projects get really complicated, basically when they're struggling, uh, when an author is struggling with something, and usually when there's a good-sized commitment on the part of the publisher, um, especially nonfiction. Nonfiction books are generally sold to publishers on the basis of a proposal, which is just a simple chapter or two and a detailed outline and a pitch, right? Uh, Then the author has to go off and write the book. And that's that's when it starts to get really difficult uh, (laughs) or even more difficult. It's difficult to that point and, and even more difficult beyond. So when, as things might often do with a first time author, um, things get difficult, complicated. Uh, it's, it's hard for an editor. They can do it and they do do it, but it's, it's very demanding on their time to, to, to put in the energy, time and energy to sort that out. Uh, and one of their alternatives is to turn to someone like me, who they may know from years past and, 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 uh, and hire me or recommend that the author hire me, which is more and more the case these days. But if sure. the author wants to get that, that big advance finally for the book and get the book accepted and see it on the shelf, uh, they're going to need to bring somebody in 
Um, and let's see if a really good editor can't work with you to make the book a reality. Sometimes that doesn't work and, and the author is going to need to bring in a writer. Um, and, uh, and, and often it does work. It depends. I mean, I'd say maybe 50, 50, uh, it works. So, so part of my job is to read the material and figure out, is this book in, in a place where an editor can bring it all the way home? Um, and if it is great, um, I'll sign on for the job if I'm interested. And if it, it looks like something I could do well, and if it's something that needs a writer, I will, I will say so. Uh, yeah. but yeah, that's, that's kind of how that works. Well, I mean, it, you've been instrumental in my my journey in this as a first time or a rookie in this space. I've got a lot <laughs> a lot to learn, but I, I appreciate every minute I've been able to spend with you. So, thank you oh, again for my that. My pleasure, my pleasure. And you have worked with you know just before we get into your book because I think it might be a nice segue because a lot of the the teachings from your book are I think s- stimulated a from you know the classic Wizard of Oz, but also just I can't, I don't even, I don't know if you keep a running tab on how many authors you've worked with, but I mean, it's been quite a few, let's say, and, and some pretty remarkable humans that, uh, many would know of. Obviously I mentioned Stephen Hawking and Deepak Chopra and, um, one of the Kennedys, I believe, was it, was it Bobby Kennedy? Bobby Kennedy Jr. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a wonderful memoir not too long ago, a couple of years ago. Um, which uh, unfortunately did not do terribly well. I think it's it, it, it should have done much much better. But um, you know he's a complicated character, and uh, you know he's an anti-vaxer, and so that kind of turns off the media. Um, sure. So there are reasons why I think that book didn't do so well. Apart from the fact that you know lightning has to strike in order for any book to do well. But boy, sure. that book. The, the goods. It tells wonderful stories, particularly about his childhood growing up uh, in that in, in Camelot. You know, in the world of the Kennedys. Yeah. What have you? What surprised you over the years working with? You know, some of these authors. I mean, I'm sure there's been a, a lot, but is there anything that that just jumps out at you that you know really you know has implanted on your mind or left a, a big impression? You know, just the first thing that comes to mind, uh, you don't yeah. have to go, go yeah, for it. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, is a thought that uh, pops into mind fairly regularly. It's that when we look back, when you, when I look back at Stephen Hawking's book, right, A Brief History of Time, which has sold more than 10 million copies, right, this phenomenon in book publishing, you know, there is a tendency that I, that I think we all have in hindsight to look back at something or look at something that, that's emerging now as a phenomenon and think somehow, you know, that was inevitable. It was inevitable that that would happen. It was inevitable mm-hmm. that this brilliant scientist would write this hugely successful book. And in some ways, I think, first of all, that does the truth a, a big disservice, which we'll get into. And I think it also does us a disservice because I think on the heels of that thought often is, you know, I'm not a brilliant astrophysicist. You know, I'm, I'm not that person for whom success is this inevitability. Um, yeah. but, but of course, it, when you take a closer look at that notion, um, it turns out to be False in all kinds of kind of wonderful ways, really. First of all, you can look at I can look at the history of a brief history of time and see the number of of kind of forks in the road where that book just could have run right into a ditch, and, and, sure. and I would never have heard of it. Um, and 
and I think it's just it's just valuable to realize that we're constantly at these crossroads where things could run off into a ditch or they could take a turn for the best. It's hard to know which. All we can do is do our best and and kind of play it as it as it unfolds. Um, so I think that's a, a, a really useful way to to view kind of some of the experiences I've had and maybe to view history and to view our own lives as as they're unfolding and becoming history in the in, in our rearview mirrors. Well, it's a lesson in in the present moment, right? Like it, it, it hits home. I mean, you and I have talked about this even in my journey of of writing this book of realizing this is the first one of of who knows uh, hopefully others but you know it, it'd be so easy to to be discouraged in the highs and lows as opposed to just you know what this is the first time enjoy this experience and the discovery and you know the the barfing on the page if you will with you know oh i've made some progress here but i you, I think that, you know, that can be applied to, to so many things in life, whether you're you know, launching a new product or starting a new business or, you, and personally as well, right? Just being in with that journey. We hear this all the time, but it's it, until you actually, you know, accept that or really live it, it like that's when you, you can feel the benefits of, of that yeah, mentality, that's right? Point. That's a great point. And I think for me, sometimes it's useful to dwell on, the, the sometimes subtle distinction between anxiety, uh, which is a, a feeling that I'm very, very familiar with over the course of my life, and excitement. Hmm. You know, it's really just a slight shift of perspective to turn, you know, the, the kind of more peripheral forms of anxiety into excitement or to acknowledge or, or realize that that's really what it is. Um, you're actually excited. and And just that little shift can kind of imbue the moment with more joy and, and enthusiasm. Um, you know, there's some really scary things out there too, yeah. but, but most of the garden variety anxiety that we experience is really, a, could also be seen as, as, as on the spectrum of excitement. So have you over the years, I mean, if, if you don't mind staying with this, cause I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think we all experience this in, in some form or, um, or the former fashion type thing. So have you, like what are some of the the practices or the little triggers or things that you do in your routine to, to make that little shift when you recognize, let's say, anxiety coming up and uh, or whether that's excitement? Like, like what's worked for you, I guess you could say, because I, mean, I feel like we're all in this boat yes. probably now more than ever. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've got two kind of go-to little tricks, if you will. Yeah. Um, one is called square breathing. Mm. Um, and your listeners may be familiar with this. It's um, it's really just a very basic little technique where you imagine your breath as a kind of square, and you inhale. The square begins up the left side with an inhale, and and to the count, let's say of four, a kind of a short count. So inhale to the count of four, two, three, four, and then hold for a count of four. Two, three, four. Then release for a count of four. One, two, three, four. And then hold for a count of four. And so now you've completed the box. Inhale, yeah. hold, release your breath, hold. That's the box. And there's something about that particular little practice that 
it's 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 kind of just a, a little basic mindfulness tool. It it takes you out of that place in your head where you're uh, creating boogie monsters for yourself or getting all tangled up in something that's that's not working for you, uh, and brings you back into a kind of calmer space within yourself where suddenly um, you know that anxiety ebbs and you can deal with you can start to inquire as to what that anxiety might have been triggered by and whether it has any basis um, which kind of leads me to the other little trick which is you know I am so familiar with anxiety and and perhaps uh, there are some uh, if not many of your listeners who are I am so used to anxiety that that I've kind of learned to this actually happened when I was uh, getting an acupuncture treatment. I, I had an anxiety attack right in the middle of this acupuncture treatment. And the therapist was there. And she said, don't fight it. Don't push mm. back. You know, welcome that anxiety and explore what it has to teach you or to show you. Um, and that was so antithetical to, to, to what I wanted to do. It was kind of like sure. <laughs> leaning on the downhill ski when you're learning how to ski. It's like, what? No. Uh, yeah. but, but, but I kind of followed her advice. And I've developed this little technique of when I feel anxiety coming in, I basically welcome it and say, hello, anxiety. Um, my, my old friend, we know each other so well over all these years. Uh, and I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate that you're, you're trying to alert me to the possibility of a threat, some danger. Um, so I'm going to take that seriously. I'm going to quickly explore my surroundings and see if there's any basis for that. And in the 99.99% uh, uh, of the time, I'm going to find that there isn't. Um, and having done that, I'm going to turn back to you, anxiety, and thank you for doing your job, which is to alert me to the possibility of danger. I appreciate that. You've done your job. And now um, I encourage you to make a graceful exit until such time as you feel the need to return. And this kind of more companionable way of of interacting with anxiety, I find takes a lot of the energy out of it. Yeah. Well, it just, I, I feel like it, it places a bit of a buffer in between, right? And it's not, the anxiety isn't you, it's, 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 it's there. Um, but to your point, it's more of a, like you said, like a colleague or uh, someone in the room with you and it's not, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't that, define you. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but, but in, inherent, implicit in the strategy is this kind of awareness that, that there is a distance between you and that, that feeling. You are not one and the same. Now, that's a great point. Well, and I think it can be applied to so many different things. I wrote down, you know, don't fight it, explore it. I mean, obviously, yeah, that's a, a, a great line and great concept to, to work with for anxiety, but for, for so many different things, even, even working on projects or writing or, or whatever it is, right? We're, I feel like we're often, by default, fighting against something, um, you know, f f in my case, fighting to get, uh, you know, a certain word count for the, for the week and, and just trying and, you know, Joey's been awesome. And, and frankly, you as well. And in past conversation, just, you know, it takes time sometimes, you know, <laughs> and I'm not just writing like really any project. Sometimes you just need to slow it down and, and kind of what you're saying, explore it and be, with the the actual process, almost going full circle back to that present moment yeah. comment earlier. Yeah, 
I mean, especially, and we're talking particularly about difficult moments, right? Difficult experiences. Um, and just to kind of reminding ourselves that there's a gift here. There's a lesson here. There's, there's a silver lining. There's a way of approaching this so that um, we can learn something new. We can, we can uh, improve and develop and grow. Um, that, and, and that's a gift that really is particularly rich and intense in these difficult moments, right? They, they have the most yeah. to teach us. Uh, we can grow the most if we can relax into them and explore them and play with them. A little bit. Yeah, for sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears a bit, um, sure. back, a little bit, well, back to, back to Stephen Hawking, just because uh, he's one of the legends profiled in, in my book. So I'm really curious to see just from, from memory of like, a bit of your experience or, or what you learned working with someone like that. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I use the book that, that you worked on, uh, and many other interviews and there's, there's a lot of great content out there, but obviously, uh, I never had the chance to interact one-on-one. So I'd love to, to hear just some of the things that you learned from, uh, Stephen Hawking or things that you'd like to pass on. And I think you, you're, we were, we were talking before hitting record that you're part of, uh, uh, it seems like there's a documentary or some work being done uh, uh, related yes. to his life as well. So it's probably fresh in your mind. Yes, yes, it is. And your timing is good. Um, <laughs> a, a group called Atlantic Productions um, are working on a documentary film of Stephen's life with a particular focus on his personal life. There have been at least three or four documentaries on Stephen. Um, but this one, I think, is... is uh, the science, of course, is going to be part of it. There's, there's no way to look yeah. at Stephen's life without looking at his work. But the particular focus is going to be on on uh, his two wives and his children and uh, what it was like, um, kind of Stephen's kind of domestic experience, his friends, um, who Stephen was as a person. Um, so, yeah, in preparation for uh, being interviewed for a couple of hours for the film, I went back over a brief history of time and then looked at a couple of biographies, try, trying to get the chronology straight because these events took place an awfully long time ago. This sure. is in the mid to late '80s now, which is an, an unfathomable uh, distance away from from today. Um, and it was just great fun to, to to kind of remember how it played out. Remember the first time I met Stephen, um, and and to make a link um and this this is going to sound grandiose perhaps but but i i wonder if there's some kind of connection between us on a subliminal level um given that he was diagnosed with als at a very early age i believe he was 22 years old and he was told he would have two years to live um and uh and and my own experience of polio, uh, they're both they're both uh, illnesses that affect the nervous system, the secondary nervous system. Um, ALS is much more grave. Uh, polio can be deadly, but it also has their milder experiences of it. But I wonder if on in, on some level that was working in ways that I'm only beginning to kind of understand now to to help sure. kind of develop a bond between us. Um, uh, but, but primarily, at least, um, on, on the face of it, the bond was all about this man who was a, a kind of crown prince in the realm of astrophysics. He was, you know, already, uh, he was widely known and, and a superstar really in his field. Um, but his field is tiny, right? His field is, sure. is a, a, a tiny scholarly world. 
Um, but he had this burning desire to kind of become an ambassador for his work um, and for kind of science as a whole. And, and perhaps that wasn't top of mind for him um, as he set out to write this book. I know one consideration was that he had a lot of bills to pay. Um, <laughs> and uh, mundane factors like this can also make a big difference. Uh, but, uh, but he really had this a gift for the media, a gift of he loved attention, uh, and as I understand it, has loved attention since he was a small child, um, and just loved the, the media spotlight, and really had this desire to explain what was going on in his field in a way that lots of people could could access. And that was an interesting part of the story in that um when the various publishers who were competing for this book, which is in itself noteworthy because publishers don't usually compete for <laughs> books by scholarly authors. Uh, but um, in that competition, the agent asked us each to write a letter um, in support of the, our, the case we were making. And, uh, and my letter basically said, you know, I work for Bantam Books. We are only just new to hardcover publishing. We are really in the back of the bus when it comes to this. We don't have the prestige of a lot of our competitors. Uh, but one thing we do have is the ability to distribute books into mm -hmm. places that traditional, conventional book, book publishers, hardcover book publishers don't. Um, this was in the mid-80s, early 80s. And I said, we can put books in you know, supermarkets. We can put them in drugstores. We can put them in airport gift shops. Um, and, you know, if that's something that interests you, you know, that would be a reason why that we would, we would stand apart from the competition. And as it turned out, that really, that's what tickled Stephen the most. I mean, the idea that his book would be in an airport bookshop, uh, was absolutely the thing, uh, that, that and a big chunk of money. Um, yeah. but there, are, there are a couple of other people willing to put good sized money on the table. But, but that particular notion really kind of reached him and resonated with him uh, and uh, swayed him to accept an offer, really what was an unusual choice at the time. Sure. Wow. What a, what a story. I, I just remember, you know, he's one of the first profiles I was working on in the, on the legend side of things where people have since passed that, um, that are included in the book. And I remember just feeling this, you know, this, overwhelming sense of optimism from him and his character, not just from his, from his work, but like there were little, I, I don't remember the exact quotes that I in included, but there are these little lines like, you know, I'm, I'm, th I'm thankful that my disease isn't actually holding me back or isn't debilitating me from my work when like any other human on the planet, <laughs> right. would have been like how yeah. you, he, he can't even move. Right. But yeah. he, he always flipped it to, well, I actually have more time to think about these things and That's write. Right. And it's unbelievable. Right. Yeah, he, he he even took it a step further. I mean, he 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 brought his kind of inimitable sense of humor into it. Yeah, you know, he, yeah. He said, you know, um, I am so lucky that I don't have to take out the trash, um, <laughs> yeah. and and that it takes me so long to get undressed and get into bed because things. Those things give me more time to think about, you know, what's going on at the periphery of a black hole. Uh, so yeah. uh, as it's turned out, my disability has been been a gift for me. It's, it's, it's allowed me all this free time to think about uh, what really interests me. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was it's just uh, 
you're right. It's it's so 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 kind of clear-eyed and optimistic, and uh, kind of relentlessly positive, um, which is very much in character for Stephen. Yeah. Well, th- thank you for d- jumping down memory lane. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I do want to ask. Up anytime it's getting uh, long-winded. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I uh, I definitely want to talk. You know, I mean, at links, obviously, is that I think I can. I mean, I can feel, and I'm sure the listeners can feel. You've learned a lot through all of the different projects coming from you know rewriting the the copy in that catalog for for your, the first job in this space to working with people like Stephen Hawking. And then now, you know, you, you have your own emeralds, right? And I think there's nine of them in, in your book and they're just such great uh, life lessons and, and reflections. Like what stimulated you to write your own book after just so many years of, of being essentially the magician behind the words for so many others? Yeah, it was just, as, as these things so often are, just serendipity. You know, I just happened to be at visiting a book publisher, and I, I make the rounds in New York and freshen up my contacts, see everybody, and, and see if they're in need of an editor. And um, I was at HarperCollins uh, visiting with the publisher there, and, and there was a, this big kind of 50th anniversary edition of, of The Wizard of Oz, um, illustrated book on his bookshelf. And I, I picked it up and was li- kind of leaping through it for a moment. And I said, you know, I've always thought that it, it would be fascinating to kind of look at this book uh, in terms of the kind of lessons that the life lessons that are embedded in it. Uh, there's got to be a reason why a book like this is is in a, a film, particularly, um, is is still so kind of central. In, in our in the zeitgeist, you know why are we? Why is this film still being talked about? Uh, allusions to it are made, you know, constantly, even now. Um, and this is a film that was released just before World War II. So why uh, was the question? And and what kind of wisdom is embedded in it that that kind of drives this kind of ongoing obsession with the film? Um, and he just looked at me very calmly and said, you know, I think that would be a great book idea. Uh, why don't you uh, write it up and, and let me take a look? Uh, so it was really that one thought. Uh, and then I had the very difficult task of, okay, I mean, that was a kind of cool inspiration in the moment. But now I've got to really go through this movie and figure out, like, yeah. where is the wisdom and what is it and how does it work? Um, and it took me a couple of years. I'm kind of embarrassed to say it was really a total of, of four between actual writing and and actual uh, what running fleeing from the task of writing. It took me about four years to finally write this kind of slender book, which which I hope is is kind of packed with with uh, with fun and, and insight. Um, but I found these nine kind of emeralds of wisdom that kind yeah. of linked up to moments in the film that I think are very enduring and kind of, and kind of classics. How did you structurally do that? Like come to nine or just, I mean, I'm in this right now that again, there's, it's not just writing. There's so many different projects where we have to kind of step back and look at it from a high level view and see, okay, well, we're, where are the themes here? And like, so I'm curious if there was any insight as when you were doing this, how you did that. Honestly, you know, the two-year journey that, that, you know, I got lost on um, was all about trying to make it more complicated than it really needed to be. 
you know, hmm. trying to make it part memoir, part, you know, Wizard of Oz, part all the authors I've worked with and stories about them. Um, and eventually, my, my brilliant wife just said to me, you know, just keep it simple, you know, just make it about the Wizard of Oz. And these other aspects that you're trying to, to, to work in will kind of emerge in the process of talking about the Wizard of Oz. And that's so and these nine emeralds, they are they traverse the, the natural arc of the story. You know, listen to your longing, which is emerald number one. That's that begins with Dorothy singing somewhere over the rainbow. Um, and so that yeah. so and then the next one, see the situation as if for the first time is Dorothy landing in Oz and looking around with this kind of amazing wonderment, you know, at this new world. And it is that looking at something as if for the first time is, is a basic principle of Buddhism. And, and maybe that's that's something that we could bring into our lives. So it's just the, the nine emeralds follow the arc of the story. And it's just actually very simple. Uh, but it's but like many simple things, it took a long time to to kind of pare away the complexities in order to get down to the simplicity beneath. Well, it's it's by far the hardest thing to do is to keep things simple. I mean, I remember my journey in the, in the tech space and uh, I, I see this over and over again with some of the most successful technology companies and products or sites or services. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. that's usually the through line, right? It's just strip out as much as the noise as possible and mm -hmm. the features and the detail, especially when you're starting out, like, um, you know, if, if you can't deliver that product without all the bells and whistles, then you, there's fundamentally something that may not work, right? right. But it's so hard to do that. <laughs> right. Like, so what is it? I mean, the, 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 this kind of basic question, you know, if I had to pick one emerald of the nine, it probably would be the first one, you know, which is listen sure. to your longing. You know, if you want to, if you're in a jam, if you're in a difficult situation or at crossroads in your life, um, just to kind of step back from it and kind of close your eyes, just be quiet, go for a long walk in the woods, go for a swim and listen to your longing. You know, we, we had a lot of struggles with our teenage daughter at one point um, and it was really painful and causing a lot of damage in, within, within our home. Um, and, and just to kind of step outside of the fray and listen to my longing and, and what finally did I long for? Like not what did I want in a given moment, but what did I really long for deeply and profoundly? And what I longed for was, was peace. You know, I longed for peace and, mm -hmm. and that peace would give me the kind of opportunity to express another longing, which was to be a good father. You know, I want to be a good father to this child and all of the trying to enforce the rules and trying to make her into someone that we wished she was instead of who she actually was becoming. Um, all of that. That's like the storm and drong. That's the fray. That's what we what you kind of want to set to one side and listen to that deep inner voice and then follow where that takes you. Um, and with a lot of help from from a wonderful kind of family whisperer who came uh, to our house and talked to the three of us together about the kind of family dynamic, and with therapists, you know, piled on in every corner, um, we managed to make that through in very good shape, you know, to sure. turn that, that difficult time into into a, a learning experience for everybody involved. Well, you really segued uh, well into the question I wanted to ask you about just how do you keep your mind clear to hear that inner voice? I was going to ask it in the context of, 
you know, when working on all these different projects and books and like massive, you know, stories and, and all of these different authors and whatnot. But I mean, you just, you brought it right, right back to home. And I think it's the same principle. Is there anything, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, therapists and whatnot, which, uh, obviously that helps, but is there anything that you're doing personally, um, that you have found, you know, keeps, keeps some space in your mind so you can see, ah, you know, that's, that's where I need to go. Or there's the sign. Cause they're there, right? I mean, we, they're all there. It's, it's a matter of whether we can see and hear them typically. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I kind of was chuckling there because you talked about coming home and, and that's Emerald number nine. There's no place like home. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I think we are talking about struggle before and I think it's easy to give lip service to the fact that we we don't know, you know, we don't have the answers. Um, but then, you know, <laughs> that it's equally easy to get all caught up in this struggle to believe that our way is the right way and uh, it's the only way. And I, I, I think humility can be a really wonderful tool, mm. you know, at times like this and not, not tearing ourselves down, you know, really, you know, much the opposite to just accept that there are limits on what we know. We're all still growing. We're all still doing the best we can. And, um, especially when it comes to child rearing, you know, to, to try to get your, self out of the way and see this person for who he or she is that's such a difficult task and it is yeah. the bedrock of, of good parenting like who is this person and how can i help her become who she is becoming get out of the way and and contribute you know to the process understanding that it's not about me you know not not yeah. easy not easy stuff. not easy no no <laughs> I mean, it's super helpful. I, I mean, I have a, a four-year-old, so it's a good reminder. <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny. I, I, uh, I'm in part of a men's group that uh, we meet every couple of weeks and just f f five or That's six of us. Great. And it's, and it's oh, just, cool. you know, something I wish, uh, I, I definitely know my, my dad didn't have growing up, uh, yeah. you know, where you actually talk about what's going on and what, what's, uh, what's up and people just support. It's just really there to listen. But I always think when, you know, if, if my son's acting out or whatever, you know, typical four-year-old stuff, I'm like, oh boy, hopefully he doesn't end up in a men's group because of, <laughs> because of this. I totally right? disagree. Hopefully he does end up in a men's yeah, group. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But hopefully he does look at how much it's helping you. Yeah. For sure. But and my, he will, you know, he will, he'll, you know, with any luck, um, he'll be in a situation where he can afford to see a therapist and, yeah. and that'll be a good thing. You know, there's nothing you can do to protect him much though you want to from, from all of that difficult stuff. But, but yeah. yeah, if he's anything like you, and of course he will be, cause he's, he's, he's kind of drinking you in and all those moments where you're not aware that he's watching you, you know, he's ignoring yeah. you when you, when you tell him what to do perhaps, but he's of watching course. you really keenly as to what you're actually doing yourself and how you're behaving. You know, he's drinking that in. Um, and in your case, you know, he's drinking in, you know, wonderful, good stuff. So. Oh, well, thanks uh, Peter. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I have to get some, you've left some along the way, but I have to get some of your reflective prompts that, 
either you've you use on a frequent basis, whether you journal or not, it doesn't matter. These are just questions that you find uh, come up frequently in your life or when you're when you have to make uh, big decisions. And I like to get these from each guest uh, just to to help the people on the other side that one prompt may resonate just like one of the practices you left may resonate with someone on the other side and what they need exactly kind of right now as, as they're listening, just like uh, I'm taking this in, for example, do do Mm -hmm. you have any questions that come to mind? Um, I mean, I'm going to use my cheat sheet, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to turn to the M. You know, because I did all this work to, to, to kind of plumb my depths uh, and the depths of this film to, to find stuff that can make a difference at these, these junctures in our lives. Um, and I think one of the big ones is, is choose compassion. You know, these are, these are not easy to do necessarily. It's not, that's not always our, our reflexive choice. Um, I think it's really easy to be tough on ourselves. Uh, and to yeah. apply that same kind of unrealistic standard or expectation to other people. Um, but if we choose compassion, uh, like Dorothy did, you know, with everyone she met on the Yellow Brick Road, um, that can make such an enormous difference. Compassion, it begins with ourselves. Compassion for what it, for being in whatever the difficult situation is that's, that's, that's causing us to pause and reflect. It's like, okay. Like, this is difficult. Um, so let me just take care of myself for a minute. Um, and having done that, look at the other people involved in this difficult thing and, and, and have compassion for them and for what they're going through and what, what traumas have shaped their lives and what difficulties they may be facing now that are making the situation more complicated. And just approaching uh, whatever the issue is with kindness, self-directed and outward directed really has an, an enormous difference. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, in ways that we might not even understand or appreciate, or in that moment, even be revealed, but over mm-hmm. time they will be, I think it's one of the very best things we can do. We'd be in a, a very different world if that was a staple you know, to everyone's character, let's yes. say, or if we're able to hang on to that. It's, it's powerful. Yes. And I think it's, it's actually what, what we, we really want, you know, listen to your longing. I mean, what do some yeah. of these um, people who uh, support uh, our America's current president, I mean, what do they really want? I mean, difficult though it may be to reach them. What they really want is to feel safe. You know, what they really want is to feel appreciated and understood. Um, and that's something we all deeply share. Now, the way in which they're, they're going about meeting their need might not be the best. Um, um, and, and, and that's true for all of us, right? That's why we turn to food or alcohol or drugs. You know, we don't always make the best choices in terms of meeting our needs. But our needs are are profound they're similar they're we all have the same basic ones and that is is deeply unifying beautiful well and it's just i mean the whole conversation it has been littered full of opportunity to pause and think and reflect and, and think about some of these questions or some of these practices or these life pivots and and moments in our journey and i i think that you know if anything has come from 
the the pandemic that we're in, it, it's definitely forced uh, some some pretty big global pauses, and I think a lot of individual pausing in life. Which that I'm 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 grateful that uh, people and, and myself included have, have been able to experience. You know that obviously great, not at <laughs> not at the expense of others losing their lives. That's not what I'm saying, right, but right, it's not anything we would have wished. But now that it's here, you know, it does come with silver linings. It does come mm-hmm. with people. Um, they might not. They'd ra- might rather be at work, but they have to be home, um, and they have to spend time with their spouses and children. Um, and and they're finding how how meaningful that can be, and how much their children yeah. appreciate having them around. Um, and course. it's not always easy, and you know, there it can. There's a lot of stress involved as well, but. But by and large, um, it does give people a, a pause and a chance to, to kind of reflect and, and recover and, and rejuvenate. Um, and yeah, yeah, who would, who would have thunk that, that this, this pandemic would, would have some good things to show us in office? Last question for you, sir. What makes you smile each day? What makes me smile each day? I mean, I think I think the whole thing is pretty damn funny, really. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think this—it's all uh, kind of an elaborate a joke. Might be too strong a word, but but it's pretty funny. I think that that you know we end up taking it all so seriously, and I completely understand the reasons why. But yeah. it's actually. The, our very experience is imbued with humor, um, and it's just a, and, and so humor just kind of sneaks up on me at the funniest times. I'll just I, my wife will kind of overhear me chuckling and say, "You know what's so funny?" And I'll say something that doesn't seem funny to her at all, but it just strikes me as like, "Wow, that's that's like really cool. That's yeah. really strange. Like, oh my god, uh, who would have thought of that?" Um, and it could be. Yeah, anything. Yeah, and it just could be anything. I'm trying to, to to think about an example, and nothing's really springing to mind. But it's it's almost more like a a feeling, like a hit, like an intuitive, like whoa, this is really crazy. This is really funny. Well, as you were saying that, I mean, I couldn't help but reflect and and see this conversation essentially come full circle with you know the reason why people call you to bring you into those complex scenarios for for publishers and authors because you do see a different side that others don't see. And I mean, I've personally, you know, experienced that working with you. And uh, so I'm not surprised to hear you say something like that. And, and I, I thank you for this conversation. And uh, I thank you personally, obviously, once again, from myself, but then also everyone on the other side of this uh, podcast and all of the incredible humans out there that have read your book and read the books of the authors that you've worked with. I mean, we all thank you for that and that dedication and that time in your craft. And um, so many of those books have helped and saved so many lives. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, this is uh, to, to, to continue to bring it full circle. This, this was fun for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you for making it possible, Mark. 